0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere.
0: Acast.com.
1: Hey everyone, Laura here. Today we want to re-air this lovely interview Amy McKinnon did last year with Atlas Obscura because it's August and I hope some of you are traveling or at least getting outside if it's not too hot out. Anyway, enjoy.
0: Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy and this is Foreign Policy Playlist each week we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world this week i'm featuring an episode from the atlas obscura podcast a daily show that seeks to celebrate and explore all of the strange and wondrous places around the world In just a minute, we're going to play an episode from the show called The Belt and the Berm Part One, which shows how the world's longest conveyor belt, which runs through the Western Sahara, connects with the world in so many more ways than you might think. Dylan Thuris, co-founder of Atlas Obscura and host of the Atlas Obscura podcast, spoke with Foreign Policy Playlist to tell us more about the episode and how the series came to be. To begin with, I have to say, you guys must have, on some subconscious level, heard my call for shorter podcasts, and thank you for that.
2: (laughs) Uh, We must have. I guess I'll say this, actually. I am a parent to two kids, four and and six, and my time for hour-long podcasts is just limited. It's limited. And so, yeah, that was our theory of the case, basically, was was that people wouldn't mind something that was 12 minutes long, 15 minutes long, and something you can fit in while you're chopping vegetables or whatever.
0: And it totally works. Like the episode we're featuring today from the two-part series, The Belt and the Berm, I learned so much. And I kept being like, this has been 15 minutes. I learned all about phosphorus. I learned about Western Sahara and the kind of history of that and how it came to be. And then also about this like crazy conveyor belt, which just cuts across the region in 15 minutes. It was amazing.
2: Thanks for saying that. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, you can do a lot in 15 minutes. It's it's a good length. It's an interesting length to work at. You can't always go into every single aspect, but I think you can cover quite a bit and sometimes talk about, you know, big complex subjects in in that amount of time. This particular two-parter, well, one, we made it a two-parter, so it didn't totally fit in 15 minutes. And two... Definitely took some work to make because there's just a lot. There's a lot there. There's so much we could have talked about that isn't in this, but uh, I'm glad to hear that you felt that it worked well.
0: It definitely did. But is it more difficult? I mean, what's that? There's a saying when it comes to writing, it was too difficult to write the letter short, so I wrote it long. I mean, is it more difficult, do you think, to to do a 50-minute podcast than it is to do an hour?
2: I think it's really different processes. Like, I wouldn't say it's more difficult to do a 15 minutes than an hour. I think it's really difficult to do a good hour, if you know what I mean. Like, a really great hour is tough, because you really actually have to have a lot of strong story turns and voices, and there's just more complexity in making a piece, I think, that really delivers on a great hour. I mean, even you look at something like This American Life, it's actually generally composed of... 15 or 20-minute segments, right? In a way, you can make something great at that length more easily, although we definitely run into the thing where sometimes we'll get a piece that's 20 minutes and it's like, oh, to make this 13, which is what it really should be, is going to be hard.
0: Yeah, the, the murdering your darlings process.
2: Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally.
0: I mean, one thing I always love asking writers, journalists, kind of creators of any medium is where they find their stories from, and I think that is especially applicable for Atlas Obscura. I mean, where do you, where where did you hear about this incredible conveyor belt?
2: Sure. So this episode opens with this 61-mile-long conveyor belt, the longest conveyor belt in the world, which happens to cut across the Saharan Desert, uh, which isn't where you necessarily would expect the world's longest conveyor belt to be, but there it is. And then you realize that it turns out that this conveyor belt is conveying a very important resource and that that resource kind of feeds into this whole enormous question around the region and the history of conflict there. So to answer your question of where we get our ideas, it's kind of a two-part question. One, this all started 10 years ago actually as a website. So Atlas Obscura began as a kind of travel and discovery website where people could submit Interesting, unusual, strange places all around the world. We would vet them and fact check them, and then and then publish them. And we were trying to kind of make an alternative travel guide that was a lot about storytelling and about surfacing places that didn't normally make it into a a guidebook. Sometimes places maybe you'd never travel to, but were just really interesting to know about. And over the years, we've grown that database of unusual places to well over twenty thousand. So we have a deep bench to draw from. So that's one place we go looking for stories. This particular story about this conveyor belt and then part two, which is about the world's longest minefield, I got particularly interested in the way that these two structures related to one another and how they both kind of cut across this region in Northwest Africa. I just could see that there was a potential to tell these two stories kind of together.
0: I was really amazed I mean, you really set up, I think, in the two episodes, the the significance, both in terms of the natural resource question, but the geopolitical significance of this conveyor belt, but also its size. And I work for Foreign Policy magazine. I love reading about foreign affairs. I love to travel. And I had never heard of this. You know, this question comes up a lot, I think. But what's your, given that this is kind of your specialty, what's your take on why some stories get told and, and some just don't, unless it's by Atlas Obscura?
2: The minefield is, I think, 1,700 miles long. It's unreal. The fact that basically, I would guess, 95% of the people you would stop on the street, maybe more, have not heard of a 1,700-mile-long minefield that runs and splits, basically, the Saharan Desert in half or in two. Depressingly, you know, sometimes the answer has a lot to do with... Location, right? Like people pay less attention to certain parts of the world, or it doesn't get the same play in the media. I mean, that may be the case with the Berm and Western Sahara more generally. I also think that there's a tendency to tell the same stories again. Travel media, in particular, I think has long had a problem with sort of everyone chasing the same angle, right? People have told Iceland's beautiful waterfalls, like, for sure. And they are. They're beautiful. They're incredible. But there's only so many times you can tell that story. And so I'm not sure if I have a great answer to why some stories get told and others don't. Sometimes, yeah, it's about access to sources or information, or it's in a part of the world that it's harder to find that kind of access. And so that means it doesn't make it into at least Western attention, Western journalism. But Atlas's whole premise was this idea that there are all of these interesting, incredible places in the world that you didn't know about. And we weren't sure when we started the website whether after a year we'd kind of be like out of stories. What we found is that's definitely not the case. I think we were actually surprised by some of what got submitted early on on the site, someone sent in an entry about the living root bridges in Cherrapunji India, which are these bridges grown from the roots of two trees. There are close to 100 of them around this region. And they were sort of disappearing because there was, like, no tourism industry. People didn't know they were there. And luckily, 10 years later, that's changed. There's a sort of whole sustainable development tourism project around these bridges. But I think we've even been surprised in the decade of working on Atlas Obscura, just how much there really is out there that we are not paying attention to or don't know about or haven't heard about. It's easy to forget the internet makes everything feel kind of small and flat. world is a big, expansive place.
0: How do you, when you're choosing your topics and the stories that you want to cover, and I do think you did this really well on the podcast, but how do you balance, you know, that kind of revelry in, in adventure and discovery, but whilst also acknowledging sometimes the thorny geopolitics of issues as you did with the Beltway, but also kind of respect for the culture because I sometimes feel like some travel writing just descends into voyeurism. And, I, and, I, and totally. I, I think you guys toe that line pretty well. How do you do that with your content?
2: The podcast actually in some ways has more space for some of these kinds of maybe geopolitically complex subjects. On the website, There's more just like fascinating, interesting, amazing places. It is used as a travel utility, and so we keep that in mind as well. One of the big things for us is we sort of don't think of ourselves as a travel media company. One, we feel like you can find something incredible, an incredible place, an incredible story, you know, 20 miles from from where you are. So much of what we think about travel is really about storytelling and that sort of finding new stories is possible anywhere. And then I think our focus is just, again, because it's story-focused, it's about what is this thing, what is surprising about it, what is interesting about it, and less about what other travel media spends their focus on. I think on the question of avoiding voyeurism, I think we just really are really cognizant of not viewing everything from a Western viewpoint and sort of othering anything. We just want to get to what is the kind of most fascinating truth about a place. And hopefully that's sort of the structure that guides us.
0: So as at least America emerges from the pandemic slowly and travel is possible, if you could go anywhere, what is your post lockdown, post COVID kind of ideal travel itinerary?
2: I think I'm Doing it currently, actually, which is, it's not so crazy or, or so wild or, or glamorous, but we drove across the country to Minnesota to see my parents, which, you know, they'd come out to see us, but we hadn't really been able to come here. So we're spending the whole month of July out like three blocks away from my parents' house uh, in Minneapolis. And it's kind of the perfect. Thing for the moment, it's really good. I think maybe come winter or next year, I think I'll be sort of looking maybe more towards some bigger trips, international trips. But for now, this is like I, I couldn't, I wouldn't trade it for any other trip.
0: Yeah, no place like home. Yeah. That was Dylan Thuris. And here now is the episode, The Belts and the Berm, Part 1, from Atlas Obscura.
2: Belt conveyors are not a recent innovation. They have been used many years for all sorts of industrial applications. I'm not sure why I think conveyor belts are cool, but I I do. I always have. I like the little ones at the grocery store. I like the big luggage loops at the airport. Even that Jamiroquai video, where it looks like he's sliding around the room. But today, we're going big. I'm taking you to the world's largest conveyor belt. The 61-mile conveyor belt system rolling across the Western Sahara. The longest conveyor belt in the world. Except that this conveyor belt, it turns out it's more than just a conveyor belt. And I have to tell you, neither the belt nor this episode went where I thought they would. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, your guide to the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series, because while this conveyor belt may start out in Western Sahara, it ends on your dinner plate. Welcome to part one, The Belt. After this.
0: We'll be right back after this break.
2: My name's Kurt Jai And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring Grand Unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveki. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. So today and tomorrow, we're talking about the world's longest conveyor belt— And like most of the world's other oversized conveyor belts, this belt is part of a mining operation. It stretches 61 miles across the desert of Western Sahara, and it carries tons and tons of this one specific natural resource that's mined from the earth. But before we can really zoom in on the story of the world's longest conveyor belt, we need to zoom way out to understand the extremely precious and important resource this belt was built to carry. So here we go. We're going to zoom way, way out. Like, far out, man. So, out there in space, there are stars. Our sun, for example. That's one of them you might be familiar with. Now, imagine a star five times bigger than our sun. For billions of years, it's been burning all of this nuclear fuel in its core. And then, instead of dying quietly... It explodes in a supernova. And in the crazy atomic reactions that happen in that moment, all kinds of elements are created. But there's one that we're going to focus on today. All the elements needed to sustain life on Earth. Its name is phosphorus. Phosphorus. P on the periodic table. Number 15. Created in supernovas and delivered to the Earth by comet strikes. And here's the thing about phosphorus. It only makes up about 1% of your body, but it's a really important 1%. Besides the phosphate in your teeth, in your bones, phosphorus is wound into every strand of your DNA. It's called the phosphate backbone. It's the twisty part of the DNA strand. And it's one of the central things that makes DNA even possible. It's also in ATP, which is part of how we convert food into energy. The PNATP, that stands for phosphate. So, phosphate is essential to every living thing, including all the plants that we eat. And farmers, they used to get their crops phosphate the hard way.
3: Fertilizers in general used to come from, from shit, basically. That's Lino Camprubi. My name is Lino Camprubi. I'm a historian of science and engineering
2: Lino has studied and researched the phosphate trade, because in addition to being one of the basic building blocks of life...
3: Phosphates are one of the basic materials of the entire world economy, in that they feed our agriculture that feeds uh, millions of people.
2: And as he was saying, we used to use poop. Cow poop, bird poop, human poop, didn't matter. It all worked. It cycled phosphorus back into the soil and into plants. But... It turns out there is a shortcut to getting your crops phosphates.
3: So phosphate is a mineral and you find it in rocks and then you have to extract it and refine it. And from that refining, you get one of the fertilizers to feed plants. By digging up millions
2: of years of compressed life and ancient seabeds, the phosphate mining industry produced what was basically a kind of magic dust which farmers then could sprinkle all over their fields. And we really kind of need this magic dust. The world's population is soaring. By 2050, two billion more people will need to be fed. Global crop yields will have to increase. Farmers will have to grow more and grow more in a sustainable way. That clip is from a commercial released by a company called OCP, They're a major phosphate mining company. And it's definitely a bit of PR, you might say propaganda, uh, trying to bolster the image of phosphate mining as this purely noble effort to feed the people of Earth. And while it's true that phosphate mining has made it possible to feed our increasing population, there's also some serious downsides to using mined phosphate fertilizers that they're not mentioning in this commercial.
3: For starters, they are terribly destructive for the oceans. They deplete the entire oxygen of large chunks of the oceans. And for many
2: of the phosphate mining operations, for every one ton of usable phosphate, the byproduct is four to five tons of this basically useless radioactive gravel. Radioactive gravel.
0: Potentially radioactive water has been pouring into the Florida aquifer. Weeks
2: after it opened up in Mosaic's phosphate mining facility. America does most of its phosphate mining in Florida, where these environmental risks have been a real problem. Tonight, the breach in this Florida wastewater reservoir is getting bigger. In April of 2021, hundreds of homes were evacuated when a breach in a phosphate reservoir holding nearly 500 million gallons of phosphate wastewater was discovered. If the reservoir broke, that wastewater would flood local communities and spread these piles of radioactive gravel that surround it. If there is a breach right now, let's say, there will be somewhere in the range of a 15 to 20 foot wall of water that would come gushing out into the adjacent community. We know, according As of early April, Governor DeSantis declared a state of emergency, and the wastewater was being diverted into Tampa Bay. Trying to prevent and respond to, if need be, a real catastrophic flood situation. All of that environmental damage is compounded by the fact that we can't quit this stuff. We are totally addicted. Without the use of fertilizers enriched with mined phosphates, it's estimated that about half the world population could starve. Let me say that again. Without mining phosphate rock, half of the world population could starve. And there's another problem.
3: The phosphate reserves are depleting.
2: Phosphate rock is a non-renewable resource. It's like oil. It's made of compressed ancient life, and there's just only so much of it in the ground. Florida's phosphate reserves are predicted to be more than half depleted in 10 years and totally depleted in 50. Some Pacific islands, like Nauru, have already mined themselves into near oblivion. 80% of their island is now uninhabitable and infertile. All of which is to say, it's not quite clear when, but someday... A crisis will come.
3: We are not paying enough attention to the future of phosphate reserves and also to more sustainable ways of facing that future.
2: Which brings us to maybe the one place on earth that doesn't have to worry about phosphate reserves. Morocco has been blessed with abundant phosphate reserves, 60 million years in the making, remnants of an ancient marine life. This is also from that ad we heard earlier from that company, OCP. OCP, or the Office of Phosphates, is actually owned and run by the Moroccan government. And it's one of the biggest producers of phosphate in the world.
3: Morocco nowadays, has 75% of the world reserves. If we had similar figures for oil, say that Saudi Arabia has 75% of the oil reserves of the world, we would have moved away from oil (laughs) a long time ago, right? The fact that we haven't created this kind of panic about phosphates strikes me because that one single country has such a power over a raw material which is basically fueling our way of life is crazy, I think. And and the Bukra mine is part of that story. And so here we are, back
2: in Western Sahara at the Boucra mine and the world's longest conveyor belt. Because on that belt is part of the world's supply of mined phosphate, the dust and rocks that half the world needs to live. The belt starts at the Bukram Mine in Western Sahara, the site of a phosphate deposit of many hundreds of millions of tons. And in a single hour, the belt can transport over 2,000 tons of phosphate out to the coastal city of El Ayoun, where it's shipped out to the rest of the world. The conveyor belt, which started running in 1971, is run by OCP, or the Moroccan Office of Phosphates and it conveys an enormous amount of the stuff, around 25% of Morocco's total sales. The conveyor belt is easily visible via satellite imagery, and it's kind of a dramatic image. It's as if someone has drawn a sharp line across the desert, because on one side of the conveyor belt is the dusty tan of the desert sand, and on the other are these white billows of phosphate dust blowing out into the Saharan wind. It almost never rains there. So this scene rarely changes, except when the conveyor belt gets burned down.
3: The first attack was basically burning down 14 kilometers of the, out of the 100. Once you've done that, uh, you put the people in power in a very hard position because it's impossible to ship the phosphates if there is not a conveyor line, right?
2: And here is where my kid-like fascination with conveyor belts, carries us into much more serious history. Because while Morocco mines and exports the phosphates from Bukhra, neither the mine nor the belt are actually in Morocco. They're in Western Sahara. It's a disputed and occupied land, where the native population has been fighting a war for independence since the early 1970s.
3: Morocco took uh, control of Western Sahara in 1975, the Polisario waged war against Morocco.
2: And smack dab, in the center of it, is the world's longest conveyor belt, carrying life-giving phosphates through a battlefield.
3: In the area around the Bucra mine, the Polisario was extremely mm, strong in fighting the Moroccans. And the real question is, how do you defend 100 kilometers of desert? In part two, we'll
2: find out how the world's longest conveyor belt carved a much grimmer path through the desert, a 1,700-mile-long minefield that cuts western Sahara in two. We'll follow one event after another on the conveyor belt of history tomorrow, The Berm.
0: And that was the episode, The Belt and the Berm, part one from Atlas Obscura. Listen to the second part and the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to Dylan Thuras and the team at Atlas Obscura for sharing the podcast with us. That's all for a foreign policy playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you'd like to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.